Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. For the second year in a row in 2023, the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington has reported a decline in residential sales, which this is surprising in the sense that we have such a housing issue that you would think that almost every home would be immediately snatched up. However, not so much surprising when you think about interest rates and the prices of these homes and what it's going to cost to get your hands on these. I want to bring in the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. His name is Nicholas Van Bordeaux. Uh, how are you today? Appreciate you doing this. Happy New Year, sir. Thanks so much ha- for having me. Happy New Year to you as well. This is, um, the, uh, as I said right then, this is on the one hand a little surprising because you would think that every house would be snatched up immediately because people want to get in. But my goodness, with the conditions we have right now, I don't think anyone should be shocked that things are slow. No, exactly. I mean, the way the interest rates went up over the past year and a half, two years, I mean, there's a lot of the buyers out of the market because of that. They're what they could afford um, is a lot less now than it was um, a year, a year and a half ago. And, you know, looking at a graph of how this went back in January, February, March, April of last year, um, there was, there, there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of houses on the market it was reasonably close though with the houses that were available with the, with the, the stock that was out there versus the sales. It was reasonably close, but by September, October, November, my goodness, there were an awful lot of homes. It looks like that were not selling. Exactly. Yeah. The first half of the year, I mean, sales were slow, but uh, there weren't many, very many new listings at the beginning of the year either. So it was still a pretty tight market versus buyers versus sellers. Um, but as, as you mentioned, as the year progressed, more and more listings came onto the market and more people were looking to sell their home. Um, don't know why exactly, but it could be some people were having difficulties with um, paying their mortgages with variable rates going up and things like that. And I mean, and the buyers um, didn't come back into the market at all either. So I mean, towards the end of the year, our listing to sales ratio also increased because we had a lot more um, listings come onto the market. Mm. Nicholas, one of the things that we have heard pretty consistently for the last few months is that once 2024 rolls around and so many people are going to have to renegotiate their mortgage and it's going to be really difficult for them, that we are going to see an absolute glut of homes go onto the market because these people will no longer be able to keep their homes. Is that what you really expect to happen? I don't. I don't. I think the the general the general person the general the, the population the general consumer out there once they're in a home and have a mortgage they will do whatever it takes to keep that home. I mean, there's lots of different options out there. A lot of people are um, borrowing through traditional lenders like the chartered banks, but there are lots of different options out there. There are companies out there that are big, huge mortgage companies that specialize in just doing residential mortgages, but aren't recognized aren't daily. Um, there aren't companies that we recognize on a daily basis because they really aren't in the public space as a retail bank is. So there are lots of options for um, people who have to I mean, renew their mortgages at different rates now and things like that. Obviously, we will see some listings coming onto the market because people just do have to sell because they um, overextended themselves with the new interest rates being increased. But uh, in general, most consumers, they will do whatever it takes to be able to keep that home and off to move out. And I think the banks and the lenders are also going to work together with them too because the banks and lenders don't want to be taking these homes back themselves mm. either and having to resell them. From your experience, so what, what my wife and I, when we first bought our first home, and it was a number of years ago, I remember going to the bank and getting approved and the amount that even back then, the amount they told us that we could be approved for my jaw nearly hit the floor. I was like, are you out of your mind <laughs> loaning me that much money? Now we didn't do that, but I wonder how many people, because the prices have gone up so much, I wonder how many people 
have purchased homes in the last couple of years at the absolute limit of what they could get, which is going to put them in a tough spot when these mortgage rate renewals come up. You're right. You're right. I don't have any statistics or actual definitive numbers in regards to what the ratios there are, but you're right. There are a lot more people because the prices had skyrocketed so much during sort of the phase of COVID that people were buying at their limit. Um, I mean, and I hope that a lot of these people have been had longer term mortgages at five year rate or five year terms, and hopefully will not have to renew coming up too soon, but still have another year or two or three left before they do the renewals. I mean, all indications are that there's going to be some um, interest rate decreases coming up towards the second half of next year, and maybe even possibly sooner and into um, 2025 also. So there might be some, I mean, some, I guess, light at the end of the tunnel for some of these people that don't don't worry too much right now. Um, there'll be some rates coming down, hopefully next, at the end of the year, towards the second half of the year. And if your renewal is um, not just in the first couple months of this year, you should be fine. So, okay. So uh, as the president of the Realtors Association, I know that sort of by law, you're required to say, yeah, everyone should buy a house because <laughs> you <laughs> want your agents to get their commission and stuff. And I get that. That's fine. But if you were advising someone right now, then at the beginning of 2024, who's looking to buy a house, would you say get in the market and look right now? Or would you say, you know, I'd wait a month or two to at least see what starts happening with these people and their interest rate renewals and see if some of these homes get flooded onto the market and see if some of the prices come down? Yeah, but I think it's one of those things where you might have an opportunity now versus in a couple of months, because in a couple of months, there'll be a lot more people also looking into the market, right? With more and more chatter happening in the marketplace in regards to interest rates possibly changing, and with the Bank of Canada um, being at the end of their increases possibly, I think the longer we'll wait, the more people will sort of be coming back into the market, and there might be a little bit of an uptick in prices again. So as, as listings might come into the marketplace, the more buyers will also be coming into the marketplace. So if you're looking for a home to buy, I'd say always reach out to a realtor, always start your hunt when you're ready to start your hunt for your new home, because you never know when you're going to come across a diamond in the rough that's the home that's just right for you. And maybe you're lucky and it's been something that's been on the market for a number of months and you have some um, opportunity to negotiate. So would this be the time then if someone was looking to sell, is, is this a good time? And again, understanding, you know, that it, naturally you're probably going to be as a default position to say yes, but if you were looking to sell... Is this the time to do it or do you do what has often been advised to people, which is, well, wait for spring because that's when people really want to start looking. Yeah, I mean, the spring market and the fall market are always the major sort of um, time periods in our industry, in the profession. Um where there's a lot more activity happening. I mean, obviously, I mean, when you come home from work and it's pitch black and dark outside, you really don't feel like going out and looking at homes, right? So you're always sort of, that's why the spring market always picks up once there are the, the, the sunset times change versus when you come home from work and things, so people have the time in the evenings to go look at homes. At the same time, I mean, talking to a bunch of different industry insiders and different um, uh, clients of mine and investors and things like that, there's a lot of chatter out there that, I mean, there might be a bit of a change in the market sooner than most people expect. Um, coming into this new year i mean originally um in november a lot of the chatter was at the second half the second or the end of the second quarter of 2024 there'll be um some uptick in the market and talking to some people just in the past week they feel that that might not even happen possibly sooner so again i mean it, the best thing is to reach out to your local realtors speak to them they'll have an idea of what's happening in your neighborhood they'll have an idea of really being able to do a proper cma for you and understanding what the pricing is of your neighborhood and what other homes have sold for and also what the inventory levels are in your neighborhood so, I mean, again, speaking to the experts, they'll be able to have those um, precise conversations with you and your, for your specific situation. So it's very hard to 
sort of gauge overall and give advice on a big picture perspective. But in general, I think the market's going to come back stronger than we all expect it to. And so that'll be good for um, buyers and sellers. For sellers, they'll be getting the prices they want. And for buyers, there'll be opportunity. There'll be listings available. So I think it'll be a nice balanced market coming into the spring. Uh, that is Nicholas Von Bredo. He is the president of the Realtors Association, Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. Thanks for doing this, Nicholas. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you've been listening today or following any other local media, you probably know about the fire that broke out at Woodlands Park, which is out on Barton Street uh, late last night in a public bathroom. Uh, $500,000 of damage done. It's near an encampment. Um, some of the details we don't know yet, but the, the broad strokes we do about those kind of things. And very, very fortunately, there was nobody injured, nobody killed. There could have been, but there was nobody injured and nobody killed, which we are very thankful for. Uh, my next guest, uh, Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko, tweeted this out this morning. Thanks to the heroic actions of Hamilton Fire Department, no one was seriously injured or killed. However, for the safety of residents and homeless individuals, this is yet another unfortunate example of why strict enforcement of the approved Hamilton encampment protocol is necessary which raises some questions. Let me bring in the councillor. Councillor Danko, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Happy New Year. Glad uh, glad to have you back. First time this year. So uh, it's another unfortunate example of why strict enforcement of the approved Hamilton encampment protocol is necessary. The obvious question that flows from that is, well, why is it not being? That, I think, is the question that I'd like to know, and I'm sure all of uh, Hamilton that that's paying attention to this story would like to know as well because the encampment protocol that uh, was approved by council is pretty clear in that if there is an uh, an issue that is an immediate uh, health and safety concern that it immediately goes to enforcement in order to take care of that issue um so the question is if this was an immediate uh, health and safety concern which i think it's pretty clear that it it, it was um why wasn't that addressed and uh, I know Councillor Nan put out a statement earlier uh, saying that she had been trying to have this addressed uh, for months since October, and, and her understanding is that it was with Hamilton Police for enforcement. But I think the reality is here is that, you know, notwithstanding what is actually in the encampment protocol, that you're not allowed to build a structure, you can't have an open fire, you can't have a heating device for the safety of residents and for the, the safety of uh, any homeless individuals, obviously, as well. Um, Police are really in an impossible position here um, when it comes to enforcement because no matter what they do, um, they are going to be under the microscope and, and judged very harshly if they actually have to go in and, and um, you know, physically remove an encampment or anything. It's just, it's just the toxicity of this issue makes it really difficult for staff and for police. All right. So you mentioned the word toxicity now. You mentioned it in, in a separate tweet today. And it is a really interesting position to um, to raise because you're right. We, we have seen in the past that when police go in, they are criticized for this. So what is the answer then? You've, to, to me, you have created a protocol. Is that not whether the police, it, whether it's a popular position or not, once the protocol is in place, is it not the obligation to go and do that? Yes. However, you know, we, we can't arrest our way out of a homeless crisis. And, and I, I think the reality for police on the ground is, 
is they are going to be met with likely resistance or belligerent individuals or people suffering mental health issues, whatever it is. Um, inevitably, there'll be some sort of confrontation and then you know somebody ends up in jail. Or worst case scenario, you end up uh, with a confrontation with uh, um, homelessness advocates on the site when they're trying to do something for their own safety um, to help them. So, you know, I think it puts everyone in this really difficult position where we don't have a common understanding of what is acceptable and what's not. Because you have a certain small group of, of advocates that are adamant that People that are in encampments should be able to do whatever they want, wherever they want, however they want. And I think the rest of us, with you know a little bit of common sense, and obviously this is a result of that kind of attitude, um, that you know would like to have some clear understanding of what behavior is actually appropriate, what's not, and what steps will be taken um, if if there are issues. And that's where we have a bit of a disconnect as a community. Some Okay, somewhere along the way, uh, we can say with absolute certainty there was a fire here because there turned out to be a very big fire, but that fire started in some particular way. So there had to have been something that led to that. If, and, and uh, I am so thankful as you expressed yourself, so thankful that this is simply uh, uh, the story we're talking about today rather than a tragedy. But if this had been worse. If somebody had died in this or been seriously injured, would it not be reasonable to expect that the city would have been sued for not protecting the people in the encampment by enforcing the laws that would have prevented a fire from breaking out? In other words, if you don't enforce it, are you not actually putting the city at risk of a massive lawsuit that you're not keeping the people safe? Well, I, this isn't the first issue that's happened at an encampment site, um, and it won't be the last. You know, there was an encampment that exploded, uh, I think it was on Victoria Avenue uh, last year or two years ago. There are overdoses constantly. Police, fire, paramedics attend these encampment sites on a regular basis. So, you know, the the, the violence that goes along with them, the, the murder at the encampment right behind City Hall, you know, in our, in our parking lot, basically. So, you know, incidences happen at these encampment sites. And again, it's, it's, there's not a common understanding of, of what behavior is acceptable and what's not and what we're going to do about it. And as to what the city's responsibility is there, I mean, as counselors, we do not direct operations. We put the protocol in place. We said this is the policy that we expect to be followed. But we're not out in the field actually directing, um, you know, bylaw or police or anybody on, on how to actually do their job. And they, do, they have to have a discretion in, in how they're going to go about doing that. But I think as a community, you know, when we see the results of this hands-off approach, we need to be a little bit more um, critical or, or have a clear expectation of when there is a health and safety issue that it is addressed and this is how it's going to be addressed. Does this mean, uh, does this situation and the broader discussion mean that the issue that was probably the city council issue of 2023 is now top of the agenda again in 2024? Well, housing and homelessness is, is certainly, you know, the top issue right now. It has been for, for quite some time. And in 2023, we spent over $140 million in, the, in that one calendar year on housing and homelessness solutions. And 
And again, you know, we're, we're investing tremendous amounts of money. This is a, is a problem that is facing communities across Canada, across the world. And it's not something that we as a municipality can solve, but we have to take the, every measure that we possibly can to address the issues at the local level as best we can. And again, that requires some commonality of how we're going to approach this. And, and right now, because of how politicized and how toxic any kind of rational discussion about this issue is, it makes it really difficult to come to um, to, to solutions that will actually work on the ground. Well, it, I mean, it does seem to me, and we only have a few seconds left here, and I apologize for that, but it does seem to me that there's two different discussions happening here, that there is the argument that this is entirely a housing issue, and there's the argument that this is a addiction and mental health issue, and those are absolutely not the same two things. You can end up with people in encampments for different reasons, but if we can't even agree on what the issue is, that makes it more difficult, does it not? I think you're exactly right. And I think we have made a lot of real good progress on the housing side. I mean, that is definitely a focus of the Hamilton City Council and uh, the investments that we've made. But we, again, we need the support from upper levels of government, especially the province on mental health and addictions and, um, you know, supports that are part of the healthcare system. And, And that's where we as a municipality can't possibly fund enough of the supports that are needed on the ground. Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko, I uh, appreciate you jumping on. Thanks for doing this today. No, no problem. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk a little bit about uh, going to the gym here because it is January the 3rd. Even though we talked about this yesterday and I pointed out that when I went to the gym yesterday, I was shocked shocked that the place was not overrun with resolutionites because every other year that I've gone right at the beginning of the year, the gym suddenly looks like it is the busiest place on planet earth. It looks like Walmart on black Friday when there's a sale on televisions. I mean, it is just absolutely crammed full of people wearing brand new workout gear. And as I said, not mocking those people. If people want to get out and get in shape, that's a good thing. We're not going to make fun of them for doing that. It does create, however, some rather interesting and hilarious circumstances in the gym. Because all of a sudden you've got not only people having to wait for all the equipment, but oftentimes you will have, and you simply have to go on social media to see some evidence of this, you will have people exploring equipment and using it in ways I don't think the designer ever (laughs) intended it to be used. There are some pretty outstanding social media videos. Uh, It doesn't take much. Go on YouTube or look elsewhere. It doesn't take much to find people who don't really know how to use the equipment, allowing their imagination to run wild and using it in ways that are more hilarious than probably effective. I bet my next guest has seen a few of these over the years. He's the owner of Lift Training. Uh, He's an online fitness coach, but he has worked in large chain gyms over the years. His name is Barry Vincent. Joins me now. Barry, how are you? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I am good. Am I correct? Would somewhere over the years, would there have been a few examples of people using equipment in ways that you did not even imagine it could be used? Absolutely. You see see it all the time. (laughs) 
I mean, I do, I, uh, I do train out of my own gym now, but I get out to uh, the local gym a couple times a week. And yeah, you definitely see it for sure. There are, as I say, I would encourage people not right now, but afterwards to go and, and look on YouTube. There are, there are some maneuvers that, um, I'm not entirely sure what the person doing it thought they were working out <laughs> or, or <laughs> what part of their body they were strengthening, but they were just making everyone else laugh. Now, the thing about this, Barry, is that in order for us to see this, somebody had to be videotaping in the gym, and that has suddenly become a bone of contention for a lot of people, that there are video cameras and not like ones in a corner for security, like other people videoing in the gym. This has become an issue. Oh, absolutely. And it's a it's a growing issue, and there's like... I feel like there's a lot of nuance to it now. And the more that it goes on, the more nuance there is. There's people who are being recorded in the gym. And then those recordings of people doing things incorrectly are getting posted. And then the people who are posting the video of the people doing the thing incorrectly are now getting publicly shamed for posting the videos of people doing in things incorrectly. And it's, uh, it just keeps getting crazier and crazier, to be honest with you. So as you say, there's a variety of reasons why somebody might pull out a video camera or pull out their phone, I guess is more likely in a gym. Uh, there are some people who are doing it because they see someone doing something really hilariously goofy. And so they think this is funny. And I mean, have you had experience where people who have been the ones doing the equipment wrong and have been videotaped, have you had experience where they get really bent out of shape about it or by and large, if they're either videotaped or if you would walk up to them and say, oh, by the way, you're not doing that right. Do they just sort of go, oh, okay. Oops. I mean, if somebody is, if somebody is, is doing an exercise and it looks like they are well-intentioned and I'm out at the gym, um, occasionally I will go up to them and try to correct them. It's, I know it's not necessarily my place, but if I feel like they're doing something dangerously and they're kind of risking hurting themselves or, or hurting somebody else in the area, then I will. Uh, but generally you just kind of let people do their thing. Um, I've never seen somebody confront somebody else for recording them. Um, I think the only person that you should be recording in the gym is yourself. Mm. And you also need to be cognizant of the people around you, because it's not really fair to record somebody without their consent, especially in a, what should be like a private space, like a gym. All right. I want to get to that because one of the other things, before we get to that exact example, one of the other things that people have clearly gotten very upset about and gotten in trouble for is videotaping people in the gym where it's more of a leering kind of creepy thing. This happens. We, we, we've seen people take pictures or put video of attractive women or attractive guys online. Uh, that seems like a pretty obvious one that you're not at the gym, yep. presumably just to hook up with people or whatever. That, that, that seems like an easy one. Yep. That's cut. That should be cut and dry. If you're caught recording somebody for a purpose like that, you should lose your gym membership. You should be banned from the gym and possibly face criminal charges. I think there was a, a local case of that a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Do gyms do that though? Do most gyms have policies that would say if you're caught videotaping someone, they'll ban you? Um, I, I don't think so, but, and I don't know if that's the way you want the conversation to no, go. No, just yet. Whatever. I I... We're going to get to that. Uh, but I think you're going to see a lot more of that. I think you're going to see gyms because gyms are going to have to step up and say, 
hey, if you're recording somebody without our without their consent, you can you'll lose your gym membership. And it shouldn't be a warning system, especially if you're going to record that person and then put it on the internet and ridicule them without their consent. Like that should be uh, a loss of gym membership. See, even and without even without the Sorry, camera that no, I was going to say, even without the camera, we've seen examples of people who have complained that people at the gym are watching them or staring at them, which is another whole issue. And it's not even putting something up online, but you get to this whole other issue as well. Should you be allowed to look at other people while they're working out? Um, I mean, you should, there should be an etiquette obviously. And if it's very obvious that somebody is staring at you, um, there should be an open door for you to kind of speak up about it to gym management and gym management should speak to that individual. But even on that, there are now, um, you know, women in particular who are trying to call guys out or call men out for staring them, staring at them at the gym. And they're posting these videos online of these men looking at them at the gym. And then you watch these videos and it's kind of questionable whether or not, they are actually being stared at when you see it on video. But now these men are being publicly called out as creeps on the internet. So it's creating this weird, this whole weird thing. Uh, yeah, because if you go to, I mean, most gyms, there is a ton of equipment in the gym. And so someone could be in your line of sight. For example, you may not really be looking at them, but where are you supposed to look? I mean, your eye, that's where your eyes go. It, it, you're absolutely right. It, it creates this thing where some people really are being creepy and leering at people and some people are getting called out for it when it's not really sure, but e neither one is any better. I mean, b both are damaging. Uh, right. And you're also seeing, you have a lot of these social media, you know, fitness personalities who are going to the gym and they film content for their videos. So they are dressed in a way to film right they're dressed up nice because they're going to be on camera but they're dressed that way because they want attention to be on their videos and they are getting upset when they're getting that attention in in real life mm. um you know and it's uh it's just a very hard situation to manage so what i think you'll see is you'll see gyms create policies um, around video recording. And you'll also have, um, maybe smaller gyms that are more geared towards the population of people who record themselves for while they're working out. And you are starting to see that you're starting to see, uh, private gym spaces that have lighting that is more kind of like studio lighting that's designed to make people look better in the light. It's more set up for recording and things like that. And you'll see some of the bigger box kind of general population gyms move away from allowing people to record in the gym. You mentioned, um, you mentioned attire and this is such a delicate issue because it just, well, everyone can understand why it is because if somebody, if, if the gym were to call someone and say, look, you're not dressed appropriately because your outfit is, what, what's the word, uh, too skimpy or too what I mean, it, 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 boy, it becomes such a, who wants to be the guy or the woman at the front desk of the gym who has to call someone over and say, you're not dressed appropriately for the gym. It, it becomes really awkward. It is. And I've, I've worked in uh, not in situation. It's almost the same as if there's somebody on the gym floor who smells really bad. <laughs> All right. Let's get to that yeah. one in a second. You know what I mean? Like yeah. well, nobody wants to be the person to have to tell them like, Hey, the next time you come to the gym, can you wear some deodorant? Cause we've had a couple people say, 
that the smell you're giving off is unpleasant. It's a similar situation in that regard, right? Oh, I, uncomfortable. I, I can assure you, I was just at the gym a couple days ago and the person on the treadmill next to me, I'm not doing exactly advanced stuff, but I think the person on the treadmill had pulled some clothes out of the locker that were there since, you know, November, uh, percolating and, and fermenting. And I got to tell you, it's impossible. But what do you say? And that's it, right? There should be, you know, you should be able to speak to somebody who works at the gym and it should be up to the gym to say something to that individual. You should not, as a paying gym member, you should not, it should not be your responsibility to have to confront somebody for creating an uncomfortable situation. But I, I mean, that that's my opinion, I guess. No, it's a great opinion. It's, it's bang on because it's impossible yeah. to work out if you're trying to huff and puff and do workout and all you're smelling is this wall of BO. I mean, sorry to be blunt, but it's true. But even then, there is a difference between calling someone or saying you smell and telling in particular, I would think a woman that she is dressed in a way that is inappropriate because if you do that in society, you'll get in trouble. I don't know how you do it in gym. I don't know how, it, it, I mean, can a gym even put in a code of clothing conduct and how would you do that? Well, I think, um, as a privately owned business, I mean, this kind of goes back to some of the policies that were put in place around masks during COVID, a private business can say whatever they want as, as far as having dress codes and having policies around what people can wear. It's really no different than saying a fancy restaurant, uh, a man has to wear a button up shirt. Okay. Okay. I, I mean, and again, this comes to part of the reason why this whole issue is being talked about because people are videotaping for whatever reason, either they are a personal trainer or want to post something online, or they believe that somehow they are a personal trainer, but other people are inevitably, it seems, going to get caught in that video, whether they want to or not. There are people in the background, there's people off to the side, and if it's someone who either looks bad because they're not in shape or whatever else, or if it's someone who looks really, um, it looks like you're filming them because they're sexed up. I mean, it's either one, it becomes a difficult thing to try and say, well, you're just videotaping me to get me on online and to get comments. Absolutely. And I think the only way to get rid of it is to have strict policies where there's, if you're filming somebody in the gym and they, they don't like it and they speak to the gym, then that's, that's it for you. You know, maybe it's a strike system or maybe it's just a, a cut and dry. Hey, if you do this, you're gone but there has to be policies around this because the gym and I see, I talk, I talk to a lot of adults. That's the primary population that I work with is adults. These big gyms are becoming uh, an uncomfortable place to go where the gym used to be a place that was predominantly made up of, you know, those adults that 40, 35 plus crowd is what used to, to dominate the gym. And that was their place to go. And now if you go into um, like a local big gym. I don't know if I should be, you know, name dropping gyms or, or whatever, but it's predominantly that younger crowd. And it seems to make a lot of the older people, especially those of them that are inexperienced with exercise, intimidated or uncomfortable to go in there and work out in the areas that are dominated by these, these younger people, right? Using the free weight area and things like that, because they just don't feel confident going in there and there's cameras. Some people have tripods set up in some situations and things like that. My, so, my ahead, initial, sorry. no, my initial reaction would be then to say, well, you just ban 
phone cameras. You ban videotaping in the gym and it solves the problem, but you've just, I think, pointed to maybe what part of the problem is from a business sense. If, if you are someone who is younger and I'm guessing that they are very often the ones who are doing the videotaping, not always are the, the shooting, but that maybe if you say no videoing, they'll say, well, fine, I'll go to another gym and you lose a member. For sure. Um, that is definitely the risk. And, and I think you're absolutely right. And that's why gyms are not stepping up as quickly as they should be to make these decisions, but they're going to have to, I think eventually, um, especially as, like I said, I think you're going to see a lot more gyms that cater to the crowd of people who want to record, um, open up but you can't keep alienating these like you mentioned yourself like the gym is is quite quiet this year as opposed to previous years around new years right i mean i haven't been to uh the big gym that i go to i haven't been there yet since january 1st but i was expecting it to be very busy and a couple people have told me that that's not the case this year and i think it's because a lot more adults who are usually that crowd who has those fitness related new year's resolutions are a little bit reluctant to go to the big gyms because they've been taken over by a little bit uh, more of an intimidating crowd. Yeah. It's a really interesting one because I I'm, I'm trying to think of another place, another venue where this has become an issue. And I think it's kind of unique. Um, because again, you've got people who are wearing different clothes or smaller clothes or tighter clothes or they like they're more exposed somehow. And, and I I mean, is there, is there another one that comes to mind for you that would be the equal that? Well, there's an example that I could give you and I don't know if it's along the same lines, but if we're talking about kind of how the youth and the behavior of youth is changing, I went to the movies last night with a friend and the amount of security in the movie theater last night, absolutely blew me away i had to ask the security guard i said hey like why is there were police like up on the balcony like overseeing and everything and he was saying like yeah it's because we're seeing fights and and rowdiness and and all this stuff like it's just a different crowd of of young people and i hate to sound like a like a cranky old man but you know it, it just wasn't like this before yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a tricky one. And again, I mean, I don't, um, uh, to this point, like if, if someone caught me on camera doing what I do at the gym, I wouldn't necessarily be all that upset. Not because I necessarily want to be on someone's video, but because it's, j- I'm just not doing anything. I don't think that's all that embarrassing, but you know what? There are people who, to, to me, and it's, I'm not poking fun at them. There's, there's people who are going to the gym, trying to do something They're not necessarily Arnold Schwarzenegger, but they're trying to improve, but they may not have perfect technique or they may even be doing something a little goofy who I don't know that they're there to be made fun of. I I, I get why some people would be really upset by this. Right. Nobody is at the gym to be made fun of. Um, Everybody is there, uh, at least I assume, to better themselves and everybody, the decision to be on camera should be your decision. That decision should come from you and no, nobody else. Hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting topic and it's one that's getting an awful lot of attention now. Uh, That is Barry Vincent. He is the owner of lift training and he's an online fitness coach. You can look him up. Really appreciate it, Barry. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. I was reading a piece in the hub, the hub.ca. It's a, an online news magazine thing. Uh, great articles there often. And one of them was make history 
meaningful again. And the subhead was, it's well past time to prioritize the teaching of history in Canadian schools. And at first blush, and even before getting into the article, I would tend to agree. I think that we do need to teach history properly in our schools. And then as I got reading it, I started to think, well, you know what? It has been a while since I was in high school, believe it or not. And I'm not entirely sure what we do with history these days in high schools, but I know someone who will know. His name is Nathan Tidridge. He's a teacher at Waterdown District High School. Uh, he teaches civics, uh, treaty studies, as well as Canadian and world history. Joins us now. Nathan, how are you tonight? Hey, Scott, I'm doing well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you for coming back on. We always love having you on here. Uh, usually, for people who are thinking, I know that name, usually it's about the monarchy and the royalty, but uh, today it's about history. So help yeah. me out, because as I say, it has um, sadly been a few years since I finished high school. They were glad to get rid of me, but it's been a few years. What right. do we teach about history these days? Well, it's, it depends on each province, so uh, because uh, education is a provincial jurisdiction. But in Ontario, um, uh, the required uh, for high school is a grade 10 history credit, and that is uh, 1914 until present day. And then you get a civics credit, which is a half credit in grade 10 as well. Then everything else after that is elective. Now, there's also history that's taught in the elementary panel as well, and there's been new curriculum that's been released on that. Um, and it really gets into kind of the meat of it in grade seven and eight, but then there's nothing in grade nine. Is that sufficient? Because that doesn't sound like a lot. Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to say no. Um, it isn't a lot. And uh, it, it's, uh, I think, where it's bearing fruit now, where we have, uh, you know, a couple generations of people now that don't really understand their history, or they have this idea of, you know, you hear things that Canadian history is is boring or bland, and they don't understand how our government works either. So um, I think that's a direct result of this. Well, okay, so I'm not going to make you say this because I don't want you to take a shot at any of your colleagues. But I, I mean, part of this may be the fact, and I have some experience with this because when I was in school, this was the case for me. If history is not taught properly, it can be exceedingly boring and bland. Right. And I noticed in the in the article that, that you're referencing, they're talking about kind of the process and they, they, something called the historical thinking concepts that are, I think, really, really, they are really, really important, but it has to be married with also these uh, these important historical moments that have, have happened for us. And, and the critical thing is making it relevant to our students. And um, that's really easy to do, I think, if we're talking about things like local history and events that have impacted our students. Um, but the, the trick is ensuring that that's happening in classrooms. Okay, so let's go to the one line that every student, uh, myself included, you may have said this too, uh, my kids certainly said this. Yeah. Um, when am I ever going to use this? All right, that's the line. Kids love to use that, and I did too. Right. Well, you calculus or whatever. When am I ever going to use this? And to be honest, I haven't ever used calculus after high school. But <laughs> if someone were to say, if one of your students were to say, oh, Mr. Tidridge, when am I ever going to use this? What's your answer? Well, that's kind of the basis that we kind of approach history, uh, certainly at my school, is is um, how do we understand the world around us based on our, our knowledge of history? And I mean, the low-hanging fruit would, of course, be with the United States and the Trump presidency. How does something like that happen? Where is that coming from? What are some – history doesn't repeat itself, but there are patterns in history. What are some patterns that we can learn that – 
that kind of inform us, uh, that can give us an idea about where we're going as a society. Um, what makes Canada the country that it is today? And we need to understand its history and, and, and the context, right? Context is everything. And we kind of live in a society right now, particularly on social media, where we've lost that context. And so it's, um, it, it, it's disorienting for a lot of people. And history kind of helps us to orientate ourselves. But how do you tell a student, and again, I'm not just like our last guest who said, I don't want to be that cranky old man. I, I, I'm the same I, way. But we do live in a society now, especially, I would say, people who have spent all their life with social media. You and I didn't, as kids, didn't have it. There are kids now who have never known anything but, and there is a certain um, immediacy and almost narcissism that comes with, well, if that's not going to affect me, I don't care. So, so again, how do we, how do we go over that bridge to say, okay, I know that maybe what happened in medieval England is not affecting you directly right now, but here's why it's important. How do we make that case to kids? I think we root them in the communities that they're in and the and the opinions that they have and the experiences that they're having and then and challenge them with this question of why do you think that way? Why why does um for example my hometown is Waterdown. How did this community even come to exist? What informs it? All the things that we take for granted about our community comes from somewhere. So we have to ask ourselves of that. And then events that happen on social media that our kids are really cognizant about, they're really keyed into events that are going on in the today, in today's world. Uh, now we have to deconstruct them. And that's a real skill. Um, and that that's where the real work is, taking something that's happening now and being able to deconstruct it and tell the stories that inform that. And, and so that's that's where I think the role of the history teacher is uh, right now. And, uh, and we need to do more of that. Your, your description right there, uh, I don't know if people are catching it. I think that's what makes you a great teacher, honestly. And I'm not just sucking up to you. I think that one of the great mistakes I believe that a lot of history teachers do is that we go uh, chronological. And I really <laughs> believe that for a lot of people, if we work backwards, let's start with you're living in water down right now. How did water, if we work from now back and put the pieces together for how this led to this and this led to this, yeah. rather than starting 500 years ago, when a lot of these people in school will not care about that. I, I, I really believe that it's oftentimes making it relevant, making it interesting and bringing it home, which is exactly what I think you were just saying. Yeah, you, sometimes you can get fixed to the timeline. So you have to have some flexibility. We have to move around in time sometimes. And and absolutely being able to look at the present 21st century and see that these things are still playing out. It might be 500 years, but these things are they're still very relevant uh, today. And they're, they're, there's ways in which we can do that. Yeah. And again, if you start the lesson by saying the great, 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 great grandfather of the person who founded Waterdown. Yeah, you've lost them. Yes. But if you start by saying, here's who founded Waterdown. Now, why did he found it? Well, where, why did he get brought here? Because you work backwards. I think it becomes, I think, you know, I'm no teacher, but I think it becomes much more relevant that way. Um, I okay, agree. There Kids is, love local history. They they absolutely love local history. And that's really something that's been lost in high school is, is the local element. And I, I really lament that loss. So why is that lost? 
Well, we don't have enough time. Uh, there's been a real shift now uh, that that article speaks about it, where we're really focused on the science and the math. And those are really, really important. But uh, when I started teaching history, there were seven people in my department, and there's now three. And that's just by the way lines are allocated and what's seen as important in our schools and, and in our education system. And uh, and so it's history for many is seen as kind of it's an elective. It's something to do if you've got extra time. And, you know, it's so important, especially now in, in the world in which we live, having that context to understand what seems to be a chaotic world. But it really isn't when you understand the history behind it, I think is so important for our students. Well, there's another huge, I would think, challenge in teaching history right now, and that is a lot of history is interpretation and explaining, you know, when you, whenever you say why, there yep. can be a number of different interpretations. And depending on where you're coming from, your background, your race, your belief system, whatever else, uh, yeah. y y it's not necessarily easy to say why and to have an answer that is going to satisfy everyone. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you find you end up with more questions than you do answers, but that's really important. And, and having those skills and having those abilities and then the skill of being able to look at an event with different perspectives is, is so important, um, especially in a world that is increasingly connected and, and, and getting smaller. Um, and, you know, and so history is it's being reinterpreted um, a lot right now, but I see that as a good thing. Um, also, new histories and new perspectives that had never been talked about before are being brought to the forefront, especially in this country. And uh, it, it can be quite exciting, but uh, it, it demands a lot of work from, from, from us as history teachers in order to do that and more time with our kids in the classroom, which we don't have. Okay, so let's say a student hands in. A student has, you're doing a project on, they have to do a paper on, I don't know, whatever. And a student hands in a paper that takes a different interpretation of a historic moment than perhaps you believe was the history of it. Yep. Is that wrong? Or what are you looking for to accept that their interpretation is okay? Yeah, it would depend on the circumstance. So that student and I would have to sit down. I'd have to look at uh, their sources and, and how they came to their um, their their decisions or their uh, their theses and, and uh, their opinions and their interpretations and it, it would turn kind of into a relationship of how do we look at this history uh, how do you see it differently than me and and where did that come from did you look at this source did you look at that source so looking at sources becomes really really important um, where those sources come from who writes them that sort of thing and in the social media era that is a skill that is really important the amount of times that I have kids that are citing um you know social media personalities uh, that is sharply on the increase and so being able to sit down with them and go okay well where do you think they're getting their information from is this relevant information how can we critique this so it those skills are becoming more and more important so it's it, it, yeah it would depend on the student and depend on what they're saying and then we have to look at the circumstances and then kind of break it down from there okay so that's where Time is, is of the essence. So uh, five, six, I don't know, last week sometime, right? In the slow week between Christmas and New Year's, there was a poll yeah. that came out in the States that found 20% of Gen Z people, so that would probably be many of your students, have a positive view now of Osama bin Laden. 
So if right. someone, if you were having a paper and that someone had to write about 9-11 and someone handed right. in a thing saying, I'm all on board with what Osama bin Laden did, I think it was fantastic. Right. What do you do with that? Because that's history and that's interpretation and that's the discussion. But what do you do with something like that? Well, like we'd have to look at the sources. Where are you, where are you basing your interpretation on? What, what, what is your sourcing? Where is that coming from? Um, history is about... Um, there, there's interpretation, but there's a fine line between um, strict opinion and then trying to interpret what those facts are. So I would use that as a moment um, to to have that lesson. And so if 20% of the population are have a favorable view of Osama bin Laden, okay, well, then how are we talking about him in the classroom? How are they under positioning him within the historical context? Uh, maybe they need to look at this scholar or this scholar or this interpretation. So it'd be about exposing them to more viewpoints um, to kind of help them kind of understand a kind of a fuller view. Mm. And then of course, the big one is because a lot of these kids, a lot of students, actually not kids, a lot of people in general are getting their information from Facebook, from TikTok and from Instagram. Yes. And so they are easily manipulated, uh, manipulated, sorry, and they don't have the required context to understand a historical figure, for example, like Osama bin Laden. Um, you know, everyone's a an armchair historian, but uh there's a real value in those people that have taken their entire careers to look at these figures. And so that's what I would point that student to. We, we need a more fulsome understanding of this person and then the time period in which they emerged. Just one more thing before we go, because we are short yeah. on time, which is, I understand because I was there as a parent, um, schools, teachers, school boards, administrators, principals get a lot of pressure from parents because parents have ideas about what their kids should be doing and what they should be spending their time on. If a school board now said, you know what, the one credit you need to get in history is not sufficient. Everybody is going to have to take history at least one credit every year. Do you think parents would go for that? Or would a lot of parents now say, come on, my kid needs to be learning programming and math and science. I don't need to be tied up in history. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm a parent and I'd be all for that, but um, uh, it, uh, the school system is a reflection of its society. And so I think the value of history, I think people are realizing that we are missing something right now in everything that's going on in the world. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that what comes of this is an understanding that we need to be teaching more history and in-person history, because uh, I'll tell you, Scott, a lot of especially civics is being pushed online right now. Students are being counseled to do these courses online and history is something that needs to be done in person. I think we're living in a time right now where we're realizing that a gap in our understanding could be filled through uh, understanding of history. And so maybe, you know, I would love history once, you know, every grade, but even just to add another history course that we can we can talk about a little bit more than the first and second world war, which is often all that's talked about in high school, would be a great benefit to Canada writ large. That is Nathan Tidridge. He is an award-winning teacher at Waterdown District High School. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Always love having you on. No, it's my pleasure, Scott. Happy New Year again. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.